This is The Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Elman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, Bard MBA's Roxy Sharif speaks with Evan Harvey, Global Head of Sustainability for NASDAQ. Evan, it's so nice to have you join us on the Impact Report. This is actually feels like a special occasion for me since it's been uh, over a year now since we first met through Bard's NYC Lab experiential course, during which I and a few other Bardians had the opportunity to assist you and your team at NASDAQ with its ESG reporting guide 2.0 published last May. So we don't have time to cover all the highlights today, but hopefully everyone listening has a chance to go onto NASDAQ's website and check out this pretty cool and impressive resource that Evan and his team has made available for corporate management and C-suite executives to use as they consider and also communicate to investors their company performance relative to ESG. Thanks, Roxy. It's been a a wonderful experience working with you, and I'm happy to join the podcast. Before we dig into a few specific questions, why don't you tell us a bit about your role at NASDAQ and the work your team has been building on for over a decade now in the ESG space? My role technically is the uh, global head of sustainability, and that's an internal and an external role. So on the internal side, it's everything that we've been doing to improve our own environmental, social, and governance profile and performance as a public company. We are Although a stock exchange, also a public company with investors and other stakeholders. So we try to perform as efficiently and responsibly as any other uh, well-run company. But then increasingly, because we have this prominent position in the market as a stock exchange and a listing venue for thousands of public companies, we've been working with those companies and working with other stock exchanges to try to figure out what is the right disclosure paradigm for ESG? What do investors and other stakeholders need to know in order to evaluate companies properly? So The bulk of my work over the last, say, five years has really been focused on that marketplace effort to understand ESG data, the impact on market valuation, and how stakeholders integrate it into their thinking. Yeah, and I think one of the things that, you know, we talk a lot about in the ESG space is the, the volume of data and sort of, you know, especially since a number, I think a number of the companies listed on the S&P 500 uh, today, about 90% of those report on sustainability, corporate um, social responsibility, ESG performance, and other related topics. Um, and that's increased from 17% since 2011. So can you elaborate on the role of materiality assessments for companies endeavoring to disclose this relevant information to investors? Well, you're right that it's a sea of data signals, ESG can mean almost anything that's not in a financial report. Every environmental, social, and governance data point tends to be lumped into the ESG or sustainability category over time. So you have everything from carbon emissions and water responsibility to gender diversity on boards to uh, inclusion of differently and disabled persons to um, the way that your board voting is published and processed. So there's a number of different things that fall into the ESG category, three or 400 different data points, depending on who you talk to. 
the Bloomberg Terminal, which is sort of the archive of record, has uh, I think 150 or 200 different ESG-related data points. So it can quickly get overwhelming for companies and investors. Materiality is the focusing mechanism for that, especially for companies. The materiality process is a, a formal process where you interview um, people that have an impact on your business or that have a stake in your business. So it could be investors, it could be employees, it could be uh, executives, it could be um, uh, communities, it could be uh, anything that has an impact on your business or has a distinct uh, symbiotic relationship with your business. And you figure out what's important to the company. And you start to sort that list of ESG signals into the top 10 or 20 that have importance in, inside and outside the company. So think of the materiality process as a way of prioritizing 300 or 400 different possible ESG data signals into a top 10 or top 20. And that makes it easier for companies to not only understand what's important, but also to attack and improve those data points. Awesome. Um, Evan, can you discuss some of the implications of this influx of ESG data in terms of all the stakeholders, but also for the market at large? I think that in the emergence of these two new ideas, SASB, SASB, which stands for the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, and the TCFD, which is the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. So there's a sort of alphabet soup of acronyms out there, but these are fundamentally different ideas from the GRI, the Global Reporting Initiative, which has been sort of the sustainability reporting standard that's been around the longest and is embedded the most around the world. And it takes a sort of standard questionnaire approach, the GRI, it says, I need to know a little bit of everything about your sustainability profile. Tell me about your energy operation. Tell me about your social dynamics and your, and, and your um, diversity. Tell me about your governance practices. SASB, for one, looks at six or seven key issues per sector, per industry. So they basically say, if you're an oil and gas company, I want to know about these six or seven things. Give me these six or seven data points specifically related to your operation that are meaningful to investors. And TCFD is another sort of next-gen climate reporting thing that asks for things beyond a simple data point around environmental efficiency. They ask companies to do pretty sophisticated scenario planning. What happens if the Earth's uh, uh, temperature, the, the average temperature rises 1.5 degrees or two degrees Celsius? How does your company still operate? Do you still have access to the materials and resources you need to run that company? Are your data centers gonna be flooded by sea rise? You know, it asks companies to look and think through the implications specifically of climate change in a much more sophisticated way than we have been doing so previously. So the short or rather long answer to your question is yes. I think you do see the emergence of some of these niche reporting protocols that are focused on very specific aspects of ESG, like climate change, that will be more meaningful over time. My point of view is that ESG sort of represents a unique convergence of, convergence of these three trends. So on the first hand, you've certainly got these alarming environmental and social signals that you know the planet and our society is in need of repair. There are areas of real peril for companies to address that have the wherewithal and the resources to address. So that's been present for the last 20 years and accelerating. You've also got the rise of data-driven decision-making within companies. Companies that are looking at dashboards and tools and calculators and ways to sort through complex pieces of information uh, looking for the signal in the noise. And so that is part of the ESG story as well too. And then I think third, you've got this emerging idea that 
these are performance signals. This isn't something extra that the company adds on to placate a, an activist investor or something that the company does in order to satisfy a, a, spe a specifically engaged stakeholder. This is fundamental to return, fundamental to efficiency and performance. Uh, and you can measure that by market return. You can measure that into how much it costs to you know, acquire and retain your staff, a number of different ways. So all three of those things are sort of coming together in the ESG movement. And I think that's what sparked the interest and the rise in the market. How does a company demonstrate its long-term strategy for creating and protecting that market volume? I think that first and foremost, the way they do that is they talk about it more publicly. Um, a lot of this decision making traditionally was behind the scenes. Even if a company was behaving and acting responsibly, even progressively, they didn't really tell the public about it. They didn't really tell investors about it. So investors were forced through um, engagement and other processes to try to learn more about how the company was operating. I think there is a more enlightened attitude now in investor relations and in the legal departments, especially of U.S. companies, to talk more publicly about how they operate and how they are taking into account things that have an existential impact on the business, such as climate change and social dynamics. So I think that's number one. And then number two is um, I think that they're attracting more business than they're pushing away with this point of view. There was a, there was a prevailing attitude for a long time that you disclose the bare minimum. You only require, you only do what is required by law, which is actually very little in terms of ESG, especially in the U.S. And that is the safe course. And I think that companies have, by and large, found more business, found more employees, won more contracts and bids by their um, progressive attitude and transparency on ESG than they have ever pushed away stakeholders who might be turned off by the idea. So I think those two things are definitely happening. So we've talked a little bit about, uh, you know, how to value a company um, or, you know, how to um, look at a company through the lens of ESG. And we've talked a little bit about some of the frameworks and the methodologies for that, including, you know, we mentioned the TSFD and the SASB. I want to just follow up with one more question. The SDGs have uh, traditionally served um, as, a, as a macro lens to engage with companies around sustainability issues. Um, each of the 17 goals really does provide direction for companies to realign their core mission. Um, but do you see uh, some of these frameworks kind of be connecting to the SDGs as, a, as sort of a step-by-step -step process or a map to measure progress against the SDGs? I love being on a podcast where the audience knows what SDGs even means, so uh, I hope so. The Sustainable <laughs> Development Goals established by the UN, you know, which is really uh, meant to alleviate virtually all of the world's ills by 2030, um, I think it's a problem, frankly. The SDGs have attracted a lot of intellectual interest, but not a lot of action and reporting, and certainly not a nearly the investment that they would require to, to uh, accomplish. So. Um, GRI and other uh, frameworks have connected their um, standards to uh, progress on the SDGs. If a company is reporting to GRI, you can do the, uh, you can look at the concordance and figure out how that's also driving progress on the SDGs. Not all of the reporting frameworks have done so. Um, and I think that, you know, my concern here is not that the SDGs haven't um, inspired businesses and other people around the world to uh, collectively work together to fix some of these problems but we still have very little evidence that companies are investing and in, and in reporting on sdg specific targets 
Do you think there's more innovation to come in terms of the development of these frameworks and methods, uh, innovations that will help map corporations' progress towards the SDGs? I'm not sure that regulation is lagging. If we're talking about the U.S. in particular, perhaps, but it's certainly not lagging in the rest of the world. Uh, you have uh, European Union, uh, they have put out a pretty stringent requirement for companies to report on, on ESG as a matter of law. You have the UK Anti-Slavery, Modern Slavery Act, and other uh, issue-specific reporting protocols, um, things like GDPR in Europe, looking at data privacy. So there are aspects of, of ESG that are being regulated and required around the world. And U.S. companies that have a multinational presence are also being caught up in those regulations. So it's not like because they're headquartered in the U.S., they're free of scrutiny on ESG from regulators. It's true a little bit that the U.S. regulator has been behind in terms of advocating for more uh, required ESG disclosures. But look at what the market has done. The market has driven more compliance here than maybe a compliance mechanism like the SEC. You know, you cited the statistic earlier that from the GNA Institute that uh, of the uh, S&P 500, we used to be in a state five years ago where 20% of the companies were reporting on sustainability, and now it's virtually 90%. So the, and that's without any kind of compulsory disclosure regimen on the books. So the market is driving more ESG transparency, uh, whether the regulator is or not. My only concern with that is that small and medium companies are not being driven nearly as uh, as much. So we might end up in a place where these large companies keep getting larger and winning business or, or they squeeze companies through their supply chain. But uh, without some kind of regulatory engagement, uh, it's possible that small and medium enterprises get left behind. Now I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about NASDAQ again and sort of the role of um, an exchange. And uh, what has been your experience over the years in corresponding with companies across sectors and industries? Has anything surprised you um, in your relations with companies and talking about ESG? Well, attitudes have certainly changed, prevailing attitudes about ESG. Uh, as I mentioned, five or 10 years ago, this was a much more difficult conversation. This was an interesting idea that companies um, profess some sort of uh, affinity with, but it was uh, 15 on a list of 20 things they want to get to. Uh, and now it's clearly top five. So uh, whether it's the rise of these reporting frameworks or the acceleration of some environmental and social dynamics that are sort of unavoidably on our radar, or just the willingness of companies to participate in a shared responsibility uh, mindset around uh, how they use the resources, human and natural, I think that um, the attitude has changed. There's now a sense that in some parts of the world, it's, it's table stakes. You have to have some sort of ESG profile in order to do business. And in other parts of the world, it's becoming that way. So I look forward to a day, perhaps I'm a dreamer, but I look forward <laughs> to a day when you know ESG isn't its own separate category, but this is just a, an earmark of good management. And this is this is a sign that of a well-run company that looks at data signals that is constantly mining for performance information and adjusting the um, the company to perform to it. So I think that ESG will become that eventually as it becomes quote more mainstream. And I think that the intervention and interest of of investors in particular has really helped to drive it there. 
Yeah, I was just um, watching something on Bloomberg the other day, a panel they had, uh, you know, again, in reference to the data problem. Uh, but, uh, you know, there are actual, um, you know, approaches that uh, asset managers, um, fund managers are taking now with taking this, you know, unaccounted for information and, and, and figuring out ways to plug it in. And I think just, you know, the coverage by Bloomberg is, is really another signal to uh, you know, society and investors and, and companies at large that ESG is really just one more data point, um, as you mentioned. It's and and I think you've said this before, Evan. It's no longer uh, a nice to have, but a need to have. So I'm glad we're getting yeah. there. <laughs> and I would say, and I, you know, since I'm we're on the, this Bard Impact podcast, and we had uh, this pleasant experience working with Bard, we can't ignore the fact this is a generational issue as well. So you have a, a massive shift in wealth from one generation to the next. You have a massive shift in corporate organizational power from one generation to the next. And there, maybe it's a generalization, but there is a more enlightened and engaged attitude around some of these issues with the younger generation of managers and leaders than with the previous generation. And so for the people who are listening to this, I would encourage them to embrace that mantle because um, this is the world that you are inheriting, and this is the world that you are largely going to have to fix. Yeah, and and you know, I mean, it would be interesting too to kind of look at some of the data around shareholder engagement, and you know, the topics and sort of resolutions that are being created, and the subject of those, um, and how maybe th it's really more focused again on these ESG issues. Um, whereas, you know, maybe in the previous decade, not so much. Um, so th another uh, interesting part of this space to, to keep an eye out on. Now we just have a couple questions for you that we ask every guest on our Impact Report podcast here. What do you see, Evan, as the biggest sustainability challenge we have to take on during 2020? Well, in the short term, and 2020 is, uh, you know, as short as we want to think, um, there is the data problem. We've alluded to it several times in this conversation. Uh, we need to separate the meaningful from the meaningless. We need to get companies of all sizes on board with being okay around disclosing some of these data points. Uh, we need investors to be more transparent about how they are using the data. So, um, you know, piling more and more data expectations on top of companies is probably not a sustainable practice. We would love to know why and how investors are using this data, how they're engaging with companies to drive better ESG practices, not just using them as leverage points. So I think there is a data, we're in the middle of this sort of, I keep calling it this bad data era, where everybody's flooding the system with questionable data of varying quality. So that needs to be cleaned up and it needs to get better. And I think that once we have good data in the system in places like Bloomberg, we'll be able to mine it for more meaningful insights. Now, I'd like to say the underlying issue here is performance, because your data is supposed to measure an actual performance, uh, a part of your, of your corporate performance. I'm not sure that we're quite there yet. It's almost like with the data will lead us to the performance gaps and show us where the inefficiencies are. And until we have good data in the system, we can't quite get there. But it's a maturation. It's a, it's a process of making this more mainstream and making this part of the signal that a company uses just like, you know, PE ratio or something that's been useful for a long time. So I think that 
you know, for the for 2020, anything we can do to either get more companies participating in the ESG conversation, disclosing more data, disclosing it on a more regulated uh, schedule, and also disclosing it according to a certain standard, such as GRI, would help. Uh, and then I also want to ask, what do you see as the biggest challenge in your day-to-day -day work when talking about sustainability? 2020 will be an exciting year in a lot of different ways, too. So, uh, <laughs> so the challenges related to my work are um, mostly legitimacy. There's still a certain portion of the corporate America that feels like this is something they'll get to when they get to it, and it's not urgent. Um, I think there is a certain challenge around what is the stock exchange's role here and what right do we have to tell companies to try to perform better? Our, our MO in this space is about being a responsible market steward. We believe that more transparency on these issues facilitates a long-term connection between investors and companies. It contributes to companies surviving and profiting well into the futures, and, and that's our, those, there are our listings, so we want them to survive and prosper well into the future. So we think that this is sort of market responsibility 101. This is something that has a direct impact on our business. This is not us you know, sitting on a mountain and, and issuing orders because we think the company should be doing what we're doing. We think that there is real marketplace value that needs to be attached to some of these data signals. So I think winning that argument and convincing decision makers in boardrooms and C-suites that that argument has merit is, is always a challenge. It's been less so, as I said, over the last five years. Um, but by and large, the, the challenge is investment. Um, getting companies to invest in infrastructure that have has an ESG impact, uh, getting them to create products and services that are tailored to the ESG market. There's this tremendous thirst out there from investors and other people for ESG-related bonds and indexes and, and other products um, where companies are trying to innovate and create solutions, but there hasn't been nearly as much investment in that side of it as I think the market would demand. So that would be my, my number one challenge would be the um, try to free up some of the purse strings to look more long-term and, and see this as a source of innovation, not as just a source of compliance. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it would be great, you know, if, if you know, stock exchanges, you know, like NASDAQ, you guys are really, I think, um, leading in terms of kind of shifting so that, you know, maybe 10 years from now, all the companies listed will have actually met certain standards, either for impact or in, you know, reducing that exposure to risk. So I think really the, the larger conversation and where that argument is, is, you know, um, you know, enlightened is, is that this is just about efficiency and creating a, a, a less volatile market for investors. So yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned risk because we haven't really talked about that too much in this conversation. It's also a very useful entree into this subject matter for companies because the more that you understand the long term ESG profile, access to resources, access to people, uh, the more you uh, are able to assess the risks that your company might be susceptible to, and the more that something like ESG fits into an enterprise risk management profile for boards. So, you know, we talk about innovation and product creation and services and, and market return, all these wonderful sort of um, gold standards that are out there for companies to achieve, but there's a good old-fashioned risk profile here, too. If you're not thinking through these issues like the TCFD requires you to, if you're not actually integrating them into your risk analysis for your company, 
I would suggest that you're not really performing a vigorous uh, oversight function either. So I think that that's a, it's been a very useful part of the conversation too. This is creeping into the risk conversation, especially in the U.S. So uh, with that, thank you so much, Evan, um, for coming on the show today and for uh, enlightening uh, me and our audience, um, but just for the conversation has been really nice. I appreciate it. Uh, our experience working on the project with Bard was a pleasant one. And in the course of this 30-minute conversation, we've thrown a lot of alphabet soup out there, and we've talked about a lot of issues that have complex histories. So um, there is a cheat sheet on the NASDAQ site that people who are listening to this might find interesting. It's called ESG Resources for Listed Companies. And it's basically my cheat sheet when I go and I speak or talk to people about this that talks about all these different reporting organizations that we've mentioned with links and uh, what are the different projects and support initiatives that are out there. And also some of the key research from the last two years that's helping to establish its correlation between ESG performance and other measures of financial app performance. So if you're intrigued by some of the issues that Roxy and I have brought up on this call, that might be, you know, a food for thought, a good portal for you to conduct your own research. Great. Yeah, I was actually going to ask, how can our listeners uh, follow you on or offline? I'm easy to find through through the NASDAQ website, and uh, I, I'm on Twitter at, at EvanHarvey99, and we have a robust NASDAQ social, en social media engine. So um, anybody who's interested in learning more or following me or the company, um, I'm pretty easy to find. Great. Thanks so much, Evan. Thank you. Visit nasdaq.com for more information on the topics discussed in today's episode. Join us for the next episode of the Impact Report on Friday, November 15th, when we'll be speaking with Yuval Bulgare, CMO of YCharge. For our complete lineup and other news, visit us at impactreportpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. The Bard MBA in Sustainability is one of a select few graduate programs globally that fully integrates sustainability into a core business curriculum. Learn more at bard.edu slash MBA.